Be careful, I might do that again, you know. Uh, as well as if you are uh, been visiting with us and are interested in knowing more about our church, uh, I want you to take note that uh, there is another day of growth that we have scheduled, uh, which is a class I teach for anyone interested uh, in knowing more about church on a Saturday, so the next date will be October 5th. Um, if you are interested in that, uh, contact the church office. Uh, we'd love to have you uh, to be a part of that. Uh, if you will turn in your Bibles now to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. We've gone through uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, uh, and now we're looking at Titus. These are the three, this will conclude, uh, the three what we call pastoral letters. Uh, these are letters Paul wrote, um, and he writes to uh, these two men, Timothy and Titus, especially giving instructions with the church and with leadership in the church. And so oftentimes, if you're ever involved in deacon ordination, which, by the way, we will have uh, next Sunday, we'll have deacon ordination with uh, R.D. Odell. And, uh, and so this is one of those books often referred to uh, in that time, as well as 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're kind of going through that, uh, those series. And so this will be the concluding book. Um, and it is a, a fairly brief uh, letter uh, that we'll be working together. And so I want to just introduce that. And in the introduction in Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, uh, you're going to find that he introduces really the themes that are in the entire letter just in those first four verses. Uh, and so this will be very instructive to us. And uh, this will not take us long to go through. And uh, so the time holiday seasons uh, come, we'll be uh, talking about messages pertaining to the holidays. Uh, and so uh, that's what is in front of us as we begin. And so uh, in honor of this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we read Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and standing as we read. Uh, if you'll read silently as I read aloud to you. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child and a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. You may be seated. There are some things that seem to have a life of its own. Regardless of the circumstance and context, they thrive. There's a, a plant that we have in our house or in our, our yard. Uh, we call it ground cherries. Uh, some of you may not know what we're talking about. It's a, um, it's a, a tomato-like plant that comes and it has a, a shell around it. And it's a real small berry uh, that turns uh, brown. Um, I was exposed to it through my grandfather who uh, grew up in West Virginia. And evidently things like that happened there. Um, and so it's an amazing thing. Because I didn't really plant these, y'all never heard of it? All right, well, I don't know where it came from. 
but some somebody's probably has heard of ground cherries you might know and i'm sure you, yeah okay i'm sure you'll talk to me because it's one of those rare things that, that some folks don't know about um and so we well, i didn't even plant them this year they just came up in fact uh there was a my so-called garden uh i had burned <laughs> Just kind of last year, I kind of gave up, so I'm just burning. There's so many weeds in here, I'm just going to burn this. And uh, I, I tried planting a few things in it. Of course, deer came, and they did their thing. And, and so I'm, I'm starting to kind of get generally demoralized with the whole gardening aspect. Um, and so uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was just thought, man, there's so many weeds here. And I was just pulling out the weeds. And lo and behold, if these grand cherries were not there, I thought, oh, wow, how, how nice. And, and I was hungry, and I started eating them right then and there. Uh, and, and I thought, the grand cherries are such an amazing thing because you don't even plant them, but somehow they keep coming back. And I think, why are all plants like that? You know, why are not cucumbers like weeds? And, and you know, it's just one of those thoughts that I have. And I thought, you know, there's certain things that are so powerful that it doesn't really matter the context and the, the culture, the ground that it's in. They just come. They're just so uh, powerful uh, that they can do that. Well, I want to present to you that salvation is like that. The kingdom of God is like that. In fact, Jesus described the kingdom of God several times using plant analogies and saying that it has this capacity to have a, a spreading influence. And I just want to present to you that it doesn't really matter how dark the circumstances are, how evil people are. Salvation has a powerful influence that can overcome that in a person's life. So... Titus is kind of case in point, the book of Titus, the letter of Titus. It is written to Titus, who is assigned to Crete, an island uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, fascinating. Evidently, Paul had some exposure to Crete. There, there is a beginning church there. And when we look in, the, in Acts and, see, and think, okay, how did believers come to be in Crete, it's really kind of obscure. There's a couple places it could have happened. One is right from the very beginning in Pentecost, when, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and, and God works in, in amazing, powerful ways, and thousands come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. There are people from all over uh, in Jerusalem at the time, and, and it could very well be there were people from Crete who became believers, and soon thereafter they go back. And here's the other uh, thread that we have in Acts of a possible church starting and that is when Paul is uh he's been arrested in Jerusalem he's being sent to Rome and basically he's being bounced from Acts 22 through Acts 28 he's being bounced from one person to one person one Roman uh figure after another on his way to Rome and along the way they they're in uh under guard and they're uh, selling, and there is a brief season where Paul is actually in Crete waiting for the storm seasons to pass, and it's just for a brief amount of time that he's there. Now, here's what you need to know culturally about the, the island of, of Crete. Um, it was, well, notorious uh, in reputation. It was often regarded as uh, one of the birthplace of the gods. All right. Now, when we talk about Roman Greek gods, we're not talking about really notable characters. Uh, in fact, when you think about uh, gods of Rome and 
uh, Greek gods. The, the, the common point is that they are often trying to uh, sneak around and get their own way. Uh, and there's usually scandalous stories involved with one god with another god producing all these different god children. Okay? So, if we have a land that is called the birthplace of the gods, and the people are following after these gods, guess what their character is going to be like? Okay? They're going to follow after that same pattern. Interesting, when you read just this, this letter, uh, skip down, down to verse 12. What, it just it kind of blows my mind. Paul is writing this to a church start in Crete. And he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet alone said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Take that. <laughs> Be encouraged. All right. Um, so that's that's Paul's what he's doing. He's just quoting uh, one of uh, the poets, uh, perhaps Epimedes, uh, uh, when he says this. And so interesting enough, when the text that we look at uh, this morning, uh, he talks about how God Verse 2, who never lies, is talking to people who are known liars. Okay? Uh, and so there's, there's a point that he's bringing out in this. And so if you can imagine a society, let's maybe, let's, let's throw out uh, Las Vegas. Okay? Alright, so, so an early church, somehow, uh, maybe, maybe some people came to, to Nightdale and, and they happened to hear the gospel and the power of God worked in a mighty way and, and, and they became believers and just a few weeks later they went back to Las Vegas and they're there the only believers and, and maybe, uh, uh, let's, let's, let's pick an RD since he's gonna be ordained next Sunday. Maybe RD is, is traveling and business travel and he gets detoured and he's in the airport there for, uh, maybe, oh, two weeks. Uh, and, and so there's, Evidently, maybe some relationships that he's able to build. And then I say, okay, let's, let's send Derek. Derek, you, you're going to go there and you're going to help start that church. Can you imagine the situation? That's kind of what you've got here. A, a church start in Las Vegas. Very uh, minimal, it seems, connections. And, and so you wonder, oh, that church has no hope of success. But here's what we're not counting on. The power of God working in the gospel. Alright? We cannot underestimate the power of God working through the gospel. It can offset, it can effect, it can turn around, it can impact. It's like that little ground cherry that in that hostile context yet still thrives. Sometimes the more hostile the context, the greater the impact. So all that being said, imagine what the gospel of God can do in your life, in your own heart. So I just want to bring to you uh, four statements about salvation. Uh, some s- simple things you need to know about salvation that Paul is bringing out right in the introduction to Titus. And it says, Titus, be aware of these Know this, let me remind you of this, and he spends the rest of the, the letter kind of uh, expounding on that, uh, if you will. So, uh, as we read, it says, his simple greeting, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
this is uh, how he describes himself. You see similar themes and in, in, uh, other letters that Paul writes. Uh, a servant of God, uh, our slave of God is the word there, uh, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is of no limit of hope to Paul when you remember Paul's background. Paul, Paul's a good person to write to Crete, okay? Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was one who uh, terrorized the church for a season until God came into his life and changed his heart. And so from that point on, it defined his future, his present, and he gives a little bit of definition. This is what my life is about, Titus. My life is about, notice what he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. Now, what I want to do is, is work backwards a little bit. He says, my, my life is working for this, the faith of God's elect. My life is working for the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And all of this is in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So, I want to start simply with this. Salvation is hope of eternal life salvation is hope of eternal life he notice he says all these things that i'm working toward is hinged upon verse 2 the hope of eternal life now it's important to understand what exactly is salvation um a couple of weeks ago on vacation i was uh i rented a paddleboard i don't know if you guys may have seen that it's basically a huge surfboard and, and a person stands up on it, and, and they use a paddle to get around. This is something I've done a few times. Uh, it's just something that intrigues me. It's good exercise. Uh, but I remember I was at this beach a, a few years ago, and I did the same thing. And the thing about a paddleboard is you can go fairly far out into the ocean. Um, and I did that. And to my horror, I looked around, and I could see these little round things jellyfish and i had never seen so many jellyfish in all my life especially without a glass separating me and them and they were big and they were small i clung to that board in a whole new way i didn't really want to fall in there to begin with but now there was a new zeal <laughs> There was a new outlook I had. In fact, I no longer to stand in that moment. I, I kind of got on my knees. I just wanted to let me, let me uh, get a little closer to this board. Because at that moment, that board was my salvation. Okay? It was my hope. And for me, uh, at that time, salvation from what? Salvation from jellyfish things. I've never been stung. And I didn't really want to start, especially in that ocean. With that many fish, jellyfish. And so that's what it represented. And so I held on to that for some hope of escape away from the jellyfish. Okay? So when we talk about salvation, what are we talking about? What is it that God has in mind? Well, when we look at this, Paul says that it is the knowledge of truth in hope of eternal life. It is the faith of God's elect in hope of eternal life. And so that is what it's hinged upon, eternal life. What exactly is eternal life? Understand something. Eternal life really only applies to God. God. He is the only one 
who lives for eternity. Now, there is eternal life that can be given to us. And there is a sense that we can live forever. Future. But we can't really go back, can we? To before time began. God is the only one who really has and is eternal life. And so when the scripture talks about eternal life, he's not just saying, okay, you're going to live forever somewhere. It is more of the idea that you're sharing. God is opening up his life to you. You now can respond to the eternal one. If life is at the heart being able to respond. You think about that. Life, uh, a flower, can respond to the sun, can respond to the roots, to the nutrients in the ground, to the water. But once it's cut off, it no longer has that life, right? It's just going to be pretty for just a season and it's going to go. Okay? So it is to say that life is, is to be connected and to be able to respond. And so when we have eternal life, we are connected to God. We're able to respond to God for eternity. Jesus said it this way in John uh, 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Understand, eternal life is not going to heaven. Eternal life is not going to some sphere, to some place. Eternal life is a quality of living in which God's life is shared with yours. Do you understand that? So when people talk about eternal life, it's not saying when you die, you're going to go somewhere. Scripturally, eternal life is God sharing his life with you. Now, the good news is that when your heart stops beating, that life doesn't stop. That's the good news. This life where your heart is beating is a shadow that points to the life you can know in God. So when we look at it that way. Is, is God's promise of eternal life is itself is a hope-filled promise. It is not an uncertain hope. We use hope, and we usually define it in an uncertain way. It's more like wishful thinking. Like, I, I hope NC State wins a football game. <laughs> that might be wishful thinking. I'm just can't, I can't resist that, sorry. Now we can apply that across the board to a lot of other teams. Okay, I understand that. All right, but that's often how we use the word hope, more of wishful thinking. That is not the biblical definition of hope. It is a, a certainty that we hold on to. It is not wishful think, thinking. It is, it is a certainty that rests in the character of God. All right, so it, it is to say it is something I'm holding on to. Um, it's not hoping I get a job that I applied for. It is to say I know because of who God is that what's been promised will happen. Uh, so uh, it doesn't rest in some creed. It doesn't rest in a moral code. It rests in who God is, that God offers his life to us. All right? So the offer of God's power for us in place of our frustration. It is the offer of God's serenity to us in place of our own anxiety. It is the offer of God's truth for us in place of our guessing. Uh, it is... is offer of God's goodness to us uh, in place of our own moral failure in life. It is the offer of God's joy for us and the place of our sorrow. 
And so it is, that's when we talk about the hope of eternal life is not just something that you're gonna, you're gonna go to. Eternal life is something that's meant to be experienced now in your life. It is, it is the idea to say, God, I need your life. I need your Holy Spirit in my life. Interesting enough, Titus 3 5, just a little bit later, he, he says, uh, we are saved by the washing of regeneration, the birth of the Holy Spirit in our life, the, the rebirth of our Holy Spirit in our life. And so when we look at it that way, it is very much tied with the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That's why Scripture says, if you have no Spirit of God, you are not one of His. Because the only way we can experience life is through God's Spirit today. All right, And so understand that, that when he says that is in hope of eternal life, that we have a different mindset. We have a desire for God, for his life, his holiness, his love, his power, his peace. That's why we pray. We want, to, we want other people to know this. That's why we prayed what we did. It is the power of the cross to give us eternal life so that when we die and everything that we've known in this life is going to cease to, to be real to us because we're going to be separated from, from homes and money and, and loved ones and people and health and, and plants and all of the other things that God has created. We're separated from that, but we're not separated from God. So we still have hope. Of eternal life. Okay? And so it all hinges. So when we talk about salvation, when we say that we're saved, we're saying that God has given that to us. And it is our hope that we will live with Him, that we know Him, that we can respond to Him, that God's life is in our life. And that's why I've said to us before that a desire for heaven separated from the desire to be directed and led by the Holy Spirit, is inconsistent. The same desire to be with God in heaven is to be the same desire that prompts us to say, I want to be surrendered to the Spirit of God in my life today. It's the same desire. To say, I want to know God's blessings apart from sin when I die, but yet while I live here, let me just enjoy my sin for a little while, is hypocritical, and we are lying to ourselves and lying to God. Do you understand that? When we define eternal life or salvation by the hope of eternal life, that's what we're talking about. And so salvation is the hope of eternal life. Now, uh, the good news is what certainty do we have? Well, he says, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This hope is based on the fact that God never lies. I've, I've, I was thinking about that, and I've, I've come to realize that when we sin, we are at the root calling God a liar. Think about that for a second. You remember how sin first entered into the world? What, what did Satan do to Eve to get her to eat of that fruit that God had forbidden? Didn't he lie about who God is? Lie about his character? By what he promised. And Eve bought into that. And said yeah. I think God is a liar. Surely this would not harm me. God was lying about that. Think about every sin. That we commit. At the root. We are calling God. 
a liar in that area. Just if you pick any of them, maybe you lose your temper, you get angry. It's tied to control. We don't like what's happening in our life and, and it seems out of control and so we're going to get angry and we're going to lash out and we're going to make it happen our way and we're going to hurt people to make it happen. And we're saying, if I do that, then my life is going to be better. Isn't that crazy what we believe? If I make people succumb and submit to my will, my life will be better if that happens. And God says, no. It is surrendering your will to mine that you can understand love. Do you believe that? If we lash out in anger, try to force people to do our will, we're saying, no, I don't believe that, God. You're lying there. That can't be right. And so I'm going to make it happen my way. Uh, If if it is to go into uh, immorality of of any sort, it is to say, what God has forbidden is surely not good. I must be able to indulge in these areas for life to be meaningful and fulfilling. And we're calling God a liar. Now, we keep on reading here. And there's more to be said about salvation. So salvation, first of all, uh, as we know it, is is the hope of eternal life. Now, when we read this, salvation is something else. Salvation is displayed by our conduct. Salvation is displayed by our conduct. Now, notice he says in verse 2, he says, well, okay, uh, I've been, uh, verse 1, he says, I've been called, I'm a servant, I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So if I have knowledge of the truth, i.e. the gospel, if I've been, uh, been set apart by God, it's evident because it accords with godliness. Salvation is demonstrated not by what you know, but by what you do. Spiritual growth is not evident by what you know, but by what you do with what you know. There's some things like that, isn't there? I think cooking is one of those. I'm, I'm no longer any, under any illusions of my ability to cook. Um, if someone says, I know how to cook. Now, you and I both know that doesn't mean they've got ingredients memorized and recipes memorized. I found that I could have knowledge of a recipe and fail miserably at cooking. It's amazing. I thought, well, all I got to do is read it and follow the instructions. I did. And my wife and I were sick for two or three days. <laughs> so, well, something happened here, you know. Um, maybe someday I'll venture in the supper realm again. Um, so knowledge of cooking is more than just knowing recipes if someone says i know how to cook then they are saying not only do i know it in my head i can apply it i can do it and and you can uh look in the kitchen you can look at the refrigerator you can look at the table you can look at the people around me who i feed and it's evidenced cooking knowledge is displayed by the meals produced okay so salvation is one of those areas it's not just head knowledge it becomes evidence in your conduct is displayed by what the bible says Godliness. Vance Havner has said this. We are challenged these days, but not changed. Convicted, but not converted. We hear, but do not. And thereby we deceive 
ourselves. Now, you remember who Paul's writing to? He's writing to Titus who lives in Crete. Known place of immorality. And he says, it's not going to be enough for you guys just to know about Jesus Christ. You've got to know about Jesus Christ. Let Jesus Christ work in you, the, having the living hope of, uh, the hope of eternal life at, at working life. And it's going to accord with godliness. That's going to be evident. It's going to be different in how you live your life. And so if you go back to Las Vegas and you live like everyone else there, uh, then there's going to be something amiss. And there's not going to be really any desire for us to know about Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can water down what living uh, Christ-like life is, so it's really no different. And so the watching world says, well, what's the point? Why do I need to know about Jesus Christ if you're not living any different, if there's not any uh, changes in, in your character? Now, when I talk about godliness, I'm not just talking about moral codes. Uh, you remember the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that, that the world needs. It's not mastered in a moral code. You cannot master peace. You can't dictate that. You can't say these are the ten steps that if you do these things, that peace will be in your life in every situation. You cannot dictate joy. This is something that sprung forth from whom God is, from who Christ is and what He's done for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It is relationship. There's some things that you can be extreme in. There's a lot of things that it's not good to be extreme in. But when you look at the commands of Jesus Christ, how can you really overdo the commands of Jesus Christ when he says, abide in me? Can you really be too extreme in abiding in Jesus? When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can you be too extreme in that? Can you be a fanatic in that and, and, and practice legalism with that? When he says, pray, can you really pray too much? To do that, when you look at the commands of Jesus, he gives us such commands that there's no such things as extremism in that of of radical fanatic legalism. You cannot do the commands of Jesus too much because the commands of Jesus are relationship oriented, tied to knowing God. And so when you know who he is and you have that relationship, it's going to be displayed by our conduct. Now. So we keep on reading here. Salvation is hope of eternal life. We, we now know what it is. We know that it's displayed by our conduct. And, and understand the wording there. Your conduct does not save you. And that's where most of the world gets it confused. They say, if you do these things, then you can be saved. No. Saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is evident. It's not the first place. Or the conduct's not the first place. It is the evidence. It is kind of like the whole analogy of the wedding ring. The wedding ring is not what marries you. It's the display of the inward commitment in your heart. It is a evidence of a relationship that you have. Okay? And so the conduct, the godliness, is as the wedding ring that adorns God. And we're going to actually... He talks about that in Titus. That our conduct does that. He spends a good part of chapter uh, chapter 2 uh, and, and chapter 3 talking about how our conduct is to display our salvation. But the order matters. Saving knowledge of Jesus Christ first 
that comes out in our actions. So, that takes us to the third critical statement of salvation. Not only is salvation uh, the hope of eternal life, not only is salvation displayed by our conduct, but salvation depends on knowledge. Salvation depends on knowledge. Notice how Paul introduces himself. He says, okay, uh, I am a, a servant, an apostle, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. I am being shipwrecked. I'm being beaten. I'm going from place to place so that the knowledge of the truth can be spread. There, you cannot separate the salvation of God, God's saving work in a person's life, with what they know. They have to know what Jesus Christ has done for them. Now, every once in a while, in a church like this church across the world, there are people who will say, you know what? So-and-so is such a good person. They're God-fearing. Maybe you even find examples in the Bible of someone who is a God-fearing person. Cornelius was a God-fearing centurion. But understand something. He did not have the life of God. He did not have eternal life. Though he was God-fearing, he did many charitable deeds... He was known throughout the community. He did not have eternal life. It rested upon knowledge of something. Of Jesus Christ. So what did God do? God put a dream in Cornelius' life to say there's a man named Peter and you need to get together with Peter. And God, meanwhile, puts a dream in Peter's life and, and tells to Peter, basically, you know what? You need to be open to folks who are not Jews uh, through the vision of the, the unclean animals. And he, and he does this repeatedly because Peter's a little bit hard of getting that message. So it comes one after another right before a messenger comes from Cornelius. So, so Peter cannot confuse it and understand, oh, this must be what uh, the dream is talking about. And so when he comes to Cornelius's house, where it's normally forbidden that a Jew would go in because then they would be deemed unclean, yet he goes in and hears what Cornelius is saying. And so Peter says, you know what? Who am I to, to make a call here? Let me just share with you the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he shares with them the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. And at that moment, God does a saving work in Cornelius' life and their whole family. And it radically changes the church as they knew it at that time. It depended on knowledge. Cornelius was a God-fearing man. But a God-fearing apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ is not saving knowledge of eternal life. That's why Paul says, I am a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We're talking about my hope. My hope. You know what Billy Graham's hope is? It's the hope that's talked about right here. It's the hope of eternal life. That's why he's able to say, I've got hope for America. He's not talking about political hope. He's not talking about military hope. 
He's not talking about hope of, of not being stung by jellyfish. He's talking about the hope that is at the heart problem of all mankind. And that is the hope of eternal life. But it's dependent on people knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing the truth. Uh, that knowledge of the truth is a way that Paul is saying he's talking about the full gospel. The full understanding of the gospel and how it impacts our life. So Billy Graham's going to spend his life teaching and preaching it. And one last time, what I love about this is that Billy Graham uh, is, I don't know how old he is. 87? 90? 94. He's 94 and he says, I still have breath. I still have a heartbeat. We still have resources. It must be that God wants me to keep putting the knowledge out there. And so he's asked us to help out with that, which happens to coincide with the purpose of Paul, the purpose of any believer, and the purposes of Jesus Christ. Let's make sure the knowledge goes out. So notice what Paul does. Verse 3. At the proper time, manifested his word through the preaching the proclamation, okay? The word preaching is the proclamation of what God has done. The, this proclamation which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul says, this is a stewardship. God has given it to me and I'm under Him. I want to proclaim this. I want you to understand, we are under that same command. When he says... In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all the things I've taught you, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always. He says, I'm going to be with you in this endeavor. We are entrusted with knowledge that can bring eternal life to somebody. Every once in a while, I'm entrusted with money. And it's always a scary thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to stay away from it in the church settings. Pastors and money is not a good mix. All right? um, but every once in a while it happens. And so here's what I do. All right, seal that envelope. If you're giving me money, seal that thing. Put your name on it. I find Tracy, I find one of the tellers, I find a, a, a lockbox. Let me see how quickly we can put that there. Alright, because I'm entrusted with that just for a brief season. I try to make it as brief as possible. Don't, after this, tell me, hey, Pastor, can you give me this money in the lockbox? That's not what I'm going after here, okay? But there is a charge, there is a, a seriousness that we need to take with that. I don't think we should be more serious about money than we are the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be entrusted with the knowledge of Jesus, his life for us, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that there's pardon, that there's the Holy Spirit that can be a part of our life, uh, that there is to say that we are children of God, that there is a living, eternal hope that we can now have, that there is a peace, that there is a power, that there is a way to forgive other people through this, that to know that and to keep it to ourselves is treason. 
We're entrusted with that. And that's why, because salvation is dependent on the knowledge of the gospel, it is upon us to make sure people know that. Last night I was in a situation where I was talking and counseling with them. And, and it was a marriage counseling situation. And I was just able to say, you know what, before we go on, let me just, let me hear from you. What's your spiritual journey? She was talking about growing up in a Roman Catholic church and, and her father that was sick and how that got her back to praying to God. And, and now her father died and, and just where she's at with that. And I thought, you know, this is no time to assume anything. Let me share with you what Jesus Christ can do for you. Let me share with you that though your father died, do you understand that your father was just a shadow and that there, that there was a giver of your father and that he was a giver of many good gifts of all good gifts and that you don't need to be so held on to the gift as much as you are to the giver to know that that can happen in your life this past week we were blessed to have opportunity to to share with the east wake high football team they're getting ready to play football we fed them spaghetti gave them dessert they were very thankful had about five to seven minutes so what do we do Do you know that you can have Jesus Christ walking with you, that you can have a relationship with God? But look, if we keep saying that God is not God and that God serves us and that that it's about our agenda, that, that, that we're first, God can't stand that, He can't abide that, He can't relate to that, and there's a huge gulf between you and Him, but God has made a way for you to, to know Jesus Christ, to, to restore that relationship, uh, to be right, but you've got to acknowledge that God is, is number one and that He has given forgiveness to you. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? And let's just, Just have a prayer. Let's share that. Why do we do that? Because it's dependent on the knowledge of the gospel. Why on earth would a group of people go work in some neighbor's yard in Mingu Creek whom they do not know when we've got 10 zillion work projects on our own home and among those that we do know? Why would we do that? Because unless someone knows about Jesus Christ, they have no eternal life. And if you have no eternal life, that leads you to eternal death, separation from God forever. And if someone doesn't share with them about Jesus Christ, then that's going to happen. As sure as the sun comes up and goes down again, that's what happens. And so let's do whatever we can to make sure that someone hears the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's interesting if the people of Crete did find out about the gospel through Paul's journeys. <laughs> if you read Acts 27, it's like a, a sailor's log. Different seas and different storms and different ways and different ports. And you kind of get lost like, well, this is, doesn't sound like the Bible anymore. I think all those details of a northeaster that blew in and, 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 and kept them at a certain island and shipwrecked them is to let you know God works through wind, through storms, through cells, through shipwrecks, through details and circumstances of life so that people in Crete and people in Malta and people in other places will know about the knowledge of Jesus Christ.
It very well be that cancer may come into someone's life so that they could be in a waiting room so that they can share with someone else about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It may very well be that you get stuck in a traffic jam and it messes up your whole day and you end up in a gas station somewhere because you're about to run out of gas and it strikes up a conversation. Maybe all these things can happen so that someone can hear about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Understand, look at the details of your life and and realize that all these things may be working for the one reason that someone will have knowledge of Jesus Christ. You ever had said that all things work together for a reason? You ever wonder what that reason is? I don't know all the reasons, but God has let us know one of them. And that's that the knowledge of Jesus Christ would be spread. That's what Paul says. All these things, I'm a servant of God, I'm a slave of God, I'm, I'm going to go where God tells me to go. I'm, God, God has a storm, I'm a slave of His. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm set out for Him for the sake of their knowledge of the truth. That's what Paul's saying. So when things happen, job losses come, job hires come, car problems come, maybe the question we need to be asking is how can the sake, how can the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ be spread through this? Salvation is the hope of eternal life. Salvation is displayed by conduct. Salvation depends on knowledge. But notice, this is a knowledge that's coupled with faith. We see a hint of that right in the very first, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. We see this again in verse 4, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It is a knowledge that has to be trusted upon, held on to. It's what we call faith. To believe it is true and it is something you hold on to. I wonder how many of you may have knowledge of Jesus Christ, but do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you hope in him? Do you know Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? Or are you hoping in good works? Are you hoping in some other broken reed? Jesus is a sure, solid hope for you. We'll keep on reading. And there's one other important statement. You need to know about salvation. That's this. Salvation starts with God. Starts with God. And so we've kind of worked backwards. Looking at verse 2. Hope of eternal life. Which accords with godliness. And their knowledge of the truth. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. God's elect. Sometimes we read this and we think, you know, maybe there's some other word I could use than elect. But there's really no way of getting around the definition that it's God's chosen ones. He has been working. He's been working in advance that there would be a people that will glorify God through Jesus Christ. And the Bible gives record of how God has been working through history. But I want you to, to read something and, and catch it. Verse 2 the, For the sake of the faith of God's elect, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Even from the beginning, it was God's desire for a people to know eternal life, to know him. How do we know that? You know, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, it talks about two trees, remember? Tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the one that was given to man never to eat of. To say, look, will you count on God? To know God? Or do you want to know something else? The knowledge of good and evil and to depend on yourself. Man chose poorly. And that. But then there was another tree. Genesis 3, verse 22 talks about that. After man sinned, disobeyed God, God said something about that other tree. What was the other tree? Tree of life. He says in, in Genesis 3, 22, we need to remove man from this tree, lest they eat of that, and no death forevermore. And so the tree of life was separated from mankind. Angels, cherubims came in with their flaming swords to, to show that this is no longer belonging to man. But why was that tree of life put in the garden? It was God's intention. It was always God's intention for man to share life with him. When he created you, when he created us, and when he created your fathers and grandfathers and, and ancestors before, when he created Adam and Eve, it was his intention that they know life. That they know what it is to share this life with him. And so, it's still his intention. I'm encouraged to know that reading from God's word, that the tree of life was not destroyed, just transplanted. You have to go to the end, the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verse 2 and 3. And it talks about the tree of life. That when you eat of this tree, the fruit of it is for the healing of the nations. Let me just read that to you again. It's worth reading. Revelation, just go right to the last page. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. I believe that's a symbol, a picture of eternal life. River of water of life. Bright as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Is it flowing to your heart through the Holy Spirit? Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river. The tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Twelve every month. In other words, perpetually bearing fruit and receiving the benefit of this. For the healing of the nations. People groups all throughout the world. Will find their hope, their joy, their satisfaction. Right now they're warring with one another. 
And they will be fighting with one another. They always have and they always will until the Prince of Peace reigns. Because what we're desiring for, what we want significance in this world, we want enough resources in our world. And so we're going to fight with one another. We're going to kill people and destroy people because we have desires that miss in our own heart. And we ask, we don't receive. And, and because we ask amiss, thinking that maybe God is here to serve us. Until we realize as nations, as people groups, understands that God is God. And He's made us for Himself. And that real joy is found in loving Him, knowing Him. When that happens, then the rivers of life flows out from the throne of God. Right now, nations can get little rivets of it. Through folks like Matt. Jerica, Chad, Amanda, Jeremy, Trisha, people like yourself everywhere you go when you're surrendered by the Spirit of God. There's little rivulets of waters of life that can come, of hopes of eternal life. Is there little streams flowing in your family? Is there little streams flowing in your workplace? Is there streams flowing in Mingo Creek? Is it, is it flowing through you, these rivulets? But there will be a day and time when we will see the source <laughs> We'll see the fountainhead, if you will, to say it's right here and there's perpetual fruit and there's the healing of the nations. There's war no more. We do not live under the curse. It is God's design from the very beginning. And we know that because the tree of life was planted right there. And Satan comes in and says, I don't want that. I don't want God to get glory. Let's live a world where people themselves get the glory, not God. So lies come in and people believe the lie. And so God announces judgment. But within the judgment, he says to, to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise to Satan and involves the woman. The seed of woman and you, there will always be enmity toward and against. And you will bruise the hill Satan, you're, you're going to win a victory. You're going to win a battle. And it's going to have a, a wounding on the seed of Eve. But Satan, let me tell you here, let me tell you now, the seed will crush your head. It's a promise. And so we read in Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began right from the beginning of history he started off he said let me tell you the first promise there's going to be eternal life it's going to happen and at the proper time manifested in his word and at the proper time jesus came the word became flesh at the proper time and now that word continues out through the preaching with which i've been entrusted by the command of god our Savior. So what does that mean? God is working in advance. He is electing. Sometimes we're concerned about that. And say, well, you know, what about my will? Don't I have some say? Yeah, you do have say in that. But the say you have is because of God working in your heart. To respond to Him. To see Jesus for who he is. You know what the very first point of salvation is as far as knowledge goes? You need a savior. And that's the point most people get held up on. I'm good enough. 
I don't really need a Savior. You know how that happens for a knowledge? That's not natural for us to think, I really need a Savior. It is natural for us to think, I need to save people. I need to change them. I need to influence them. How does it happen? When we get a glimpse of who Christ is, when we see the glory of who Jesus is, and we see how we... We thought we were good until we saw Jesus and we saw who He is. You know how we see Jesus? That happens through the Holy Spirit. Corinthians 3 talks about how our eyes and faces are veiled to who Jesus is. But there'll be a day when the veils will be taken away and we can receive Jesus. And they're kind of given this parallel phrase of receiving Jesus and having the veil taken away. It shows evidence of, of God's doing the work and also our own receiving that work and responding to that. I'm going to tell you, I don't know how it is that we have will and choice and God elects. I don't know how that works, but I do know the Bible teaches both. And they're within the mystery of who God is. But here's one thing that we do know. That Paul didn't know who the elect were when he came to Crete. And, and Titus did not know who they were. And, and Paul spent his years saying, you know, I don't know how this is, but I do know when I preach the knowledge, the elect become evident. When I preach the knowledge of Jesus Christ, when we pray, it becomes evident. And so here's what we do. We keep teaching, we keep preaching the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let it become evident. Now, why is that encouraging? In the same way, I think it's amazing that grand cherries can plant in places that are burnt out, and I didn't plant anything. I could look at it at something and you say, is there anything worthwhile that's going to be grown there? And I'll say, no. I've tried. Deer will eat them. Weeds will choke them out. Things will happen. I just... And bam. Grand cherries come up. How does that happen? God's work. God's work. You can look at someone, you can look at your own life, and you think, there's no way. No way. They're not going to choose Christ. They're not gonna, they don't care about God. They, don't, they think I'm a silly, an idiot. They hate me. They are all wrapped up about themselves. Here's the news break. All of us were. There's not one heart where the seed of the gospel is implanted where it first was not wrapped up in themselves. And the good news is God can break hard ground. God can do that. And so God, through Paul, says to, to Titus, You're in Crete. Known liars. Cretans are always liars. They're always evil beasts. They're always lazy. They're always gluttons. Their own poet says that. But you go on because there is work to be done for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, it's been revealed and made evidence worth to the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Keep teaching. Keep preaching. Proclaiming. God's got his elect. And it'll be evident. And so... As we close up,
Let's just have a word of prayer.